Take your Bibles this morning again to the book of the Psalms, Psalm 96. invite you once you find your place to please stand and we'll read God's word together. Psalm 96 in its whole. The word of God says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Strength and majesty are before him. Strength, sorry, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering. And come into his courtyards, worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth and say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples fairly. May the heavens be joyful and may the the earth rejoice. May the sea roar and all it contains. May the field be jubilant and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray again before we go to the message. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for your word and for the powerful call it makes to us to sing to the Lord, to worship the Lord from our hearts, with hearts full of joy and rejoicing in our salvation. Father, we pray that we would this morning, as we listen to the message, we would be ascribing to the Lord the glory and the strength that are due his name. Father, we would be reminded and remembering that you are great and greatly to be praised. You are the Lord who reigns over all creation, and you are coming again to, to establish justice and judge the peoples. Father, we pray. We plead with you, O God, that you would speak this morning. Father, we pray again for the anointing of the Holy Spirit on this message. We pray, Father, for the words to speak your truth, your heart, your message to all the people. Father, we pray for boldness to speak the truth, for utterance to be given. Father, we pray again that grace would season the words and love would be the motive and love would also be the outcome. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Father, we pray this morning through the preaching of the word of God that there would be the salvation of the lost, the edification, the building up of the saints, the encouragement of the downcast and discouraged, the consolation for those who are grieving, the comfort for the afflicted. And Father, we ask you that this time would be a time of a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. And we ask you these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Please have a seat. It's a beautiful psalm, and I've spent a lot of my week this week working on this uh, for two Bible studies as well as the message this morning. And uh, one of the things that's interesting as you look at the psalms is you wonder who wrote them, who to, what was their purpose, and so on. And some of the psalms give us lots of background information. This one doesn't give us that. It doesn't tell us who wrote the psalm. It's an unknown person. It could have been David given to Asaph to sing as they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. There is a superscription applied by the Greek scholars to what's called the Septuagint that says that the psalm was for the singing after they rebuilt the temple, a psalm of David. But that, again, is just an editor's point put in long after the psalm was written. We don't know who wrote it. But we do know who the recipients of the psalm are for. If you look in verse number 4, you'll see, uh, not verse number 4, you'll see in verse number 1, sing to the Lord all the earth. So he identifies these are the ones who are being called to sing. What does he mean by all the earth? 
He means all of humanity, all the nations of mankind. You'll notice he says in uh, verse 7, Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Again, he's speaking to all the nations of the world to worship and praise the Lord. And again, the the phrase, all the earth, comes up in verse 9, calling those to tremble before him. So the psalm is written to all humanity. What's it talking about? Well, you don't have to be too quick or too bright to pick up what it's talking about. It's talking about glorifying the Lord. And uh, one of the things I've been doing in my devotionals, my daily times with the Lord, is working through the London Baptist Confession of Faith Catechism. You say, what in the world is catechism? Some of you may know, some of you may remember growing up and doing catechism as kids in church. A catechism is a way to teach young people, and I mean young people of all ages because I'm not young and I'm still learning it, uh, basic biblical truth in a question and answer format. And if I asked one of the most well-known questions of the catechism, I'm sure most of you could holler out the answer to me. The question is, what is the chief end of man? Who knows what the chief end of man is in the catechism? Oh, please don't make me feel foolish by saying someone would know it. Go ahead, Wes. Amen. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is why we were created. God created every single one of us with a purpose and a way in which we are to live our lives. And the overriding purpose behind everything we do, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or a teacher or a carpenter or whatever it is you do, our overriding purpose as God's creation, humanity, is to glorify the Lord. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 43 and verse 7, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, Paul tells us, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Revelation 4 verse 11, the Bible says, worthy you are, sorry, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. God created us to glorify him in everything that we do. Well, you say, how is that a legitimate call of God? Why does God call us to do that? What's the reason behind that purpose of glorifying God? If you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you look at how God created all the different things in creation from both the vegetation and the living creatures, you'll see it says there that he created them after their kind. But when he comes to man, man is created differently than all the vegetation, all the animals and, and birds and fish and so on. Man was created after the image and likeness of God. It's a beautiful story how God reaches down and forms man of the clay of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And we become living creatures in God's image and in God's likeness. And we have a role to fulfill as we are just that. It is to display the glory of God to all of creation. And of course, we all know the great problem that sin came in. And disobedience to God came in, and we could no longer glorify God because of our sin and disobedience. So God has to do a great work of salvation to bring us back to himself so that we can fulfill that purpose for which we were designed. And the psalm is calling us to do exactly that. The psalm is talking about glorifying God. Well, what's it saying about that? You could break up the psalm into three stanzas. In fact, my NASB Bible breaks up just like that. Yours may be a little bit different. But basically, you got three stanzas. The first stanza in verses 1 to 6 is glorify the Lord because he is great. The second stanza in verses 7 to 10 is to glorify the Lord because he reigns as king. And thirdly, the third stanza from verses 11 to 13, the main idea there is to glorify the Lord because he comes to judge. He is great. He is the king who rules and reigns over all on his throne, and he is coming to judge. And there we have the background. We have all we need to present the gospel. And in fact, that's what the psalm does. It gives us a call to both worship the Lord and witness for the Lord. 
So if you wanted to summarize the message this morning, we would say it like this. Glorify the Lord in worship and witness for his greatness and his glory. Notice the first stanza. We glorify the Lord because he is great. Verses 1 to 6. Notice again, in verse 1, it's addressed to God's faithful in all the earth. So he's talking to all the nations, all those who have come to faith in God for salvation are being called by the psalm to worship the Lord. Notice what he says. First of all, we glorify the Lord in joyful worship. One of the themes that comes up all through this psalm is joy. Singing. Three times we're told to sing to the Lord. We're told to rejoice. The the different uh, plants and animals and so on in the last stanza, may the heavens be joyful. May the earth rejoice. May the sea roar. May the field be jubilant. It's all a theme and a, a flavor of joy. And our worship for the Lord is to be a joyful expression. How do we do it? Well, he tells us, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Those are all worship ideas. We worship the Lord in joyful worship by singing. We've been doing that for the last little while. And sometimes I find my singing becomes, you know, and you just kind of mumble and moan our way through it. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be singing in joyful expression to God. Song is a beautiful thing. Uh, I come from a musical family. My wife is incredibly musical. Uh, My two sons are incredibly musical. I, however, was blessed with different gifts. I love music, but I'm not so great at it. But music is beautiful because it combines melody and harmony and rhythm. And songs of praise to God combine those three things with truth and emotion brought together as a joyful expression of joy in God. Not one of those can be taken out. Uh, People say, oh, no, hang on a second. Got to be careful of that emotion thing. But you know what it is? It's motion, emotion, and truth in balance. Uh, Somebody once described the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones as logic on fire. In a sense, the music, the songs we sing in praise to God, the joyful singing ought to be just the same. The logic, the beautiful truths of the scripture expressed in song with emotion, with fire, if you like. Now, obviously, if you emphasize one over against the other, you're going to wind up out of balance and you're going to have a problem in worship. Songs that are so theologically rich that they can't be sung, it doesn't make sense. That's why when you look at the song, sometimes you go, it's a beautiful expression. It doesn't contain everything about that truth, but it contains a lot of things about that truth. Uh, John Piper has a great statement, and I like it because it, it actually nails it down well. There are thousands of new songs, new worship songs, he means, and there are hundreds of good ones. I thought, that's good. Because he got the point, and he was getting the point across. The answer is not to not sing new songs. The answer is to write better new songs that express the truth of Scripture in a song that's singable. Uh, Heather and I pick new songs for the church often, and we have a very limited uh, scope of where we pick them from. The Gettys, Townend, Sovereign Grace, not much beyond that. Every once in a while, we have some other ones. Why don't we pick all kinds of ones? Well, even the Gettys and some of their songs are beautiful songs of beautiful truth, but we go, that's a great song, but a congregation isn't going to really struggle to sing that. It has to be singable. So singing combines the beautiful elements of melody and harmony and rhythm and truth and emotion in a joyful expression to the Lord. He is the object of our worship. One of the things that we have to be very careful of, brothers and sisters in church, is that the right person is the object of worship. Far too often we make too much of the people in the church that are doing the song leading, the people who are doing the preaching, the people who are doing the praying. They're not the object of our worship. Often people ask you, how do you see your ministry? I have a simple expression. I see my ministry like a signpost. We're going to go to the UK for five weeks, leaving here in, in uh, hang on, what would it be now? 38 days. Not that I'm counting. 
And we're gonna, we've been looking at last night at some maps of the UK and how we're going to go all over the UK. And oh, you see all these places, all these roads to get there. And you know, if, when you drive from London to Cambridge, you're so excited to get to Cambridge. And all along the way, you've passed all these signs that said, Cambridge this way, so many miles, and Cambridge this way, so many miles, and, and turn left here and whatever. And you obey those road signs because if you don't obey the road signs, you're not going to get to Cambridge. But at the end of the day, nobody looks back and goes, wow. Those signs, wow, they were so cool. They go, Cambridge was cool. And I'm really looking forward to seeing Cambridge. They're street signs. They point the way. The object of the travel is to get to where God is taking us. In this particular point here, he says, sing to the Lord. He is the object of our worship. Notice, like Spurgeon pointed out, he says, sing to the Lord three times. Spurgeon says, isn't it amazing? We serve and worship a Trinity God, a God who is triune in nature. So three times we're called to sing to the Lord. In verse 7 and 8, three times we're called to ascribe to the Lord. It's a recognition of the fact that we worship a triune God. And those persons of the Trinity are the object of our worship. Notice also he says, sing a new song. Now, You can think of that as new songs freshly written, and there is an element to that. But in Scripture, there's something else that's even more important. The idea of a new song in Scripture is linked to the idea of salvation. For example, the Bible says in Psalm 40 and verses 2 and 3 that he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and make my, making my footsteps firm, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Singing new songs was linked to the salvation experiences of the people of God. In Isaiah 42, verses 10 to 12, after Isaiah has told them of the work of the suffering servant to save his people, he says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that's in it, you islands and those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the sediments where Kedar inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. He's talking about singing new songs of worship to God for the salvation that they have experienced through the suffering servant of the Lord. And that's exactly what the psalmist is calling us to do. We sing new songs because we experience new mercies of the Lord every morning. It's funny how your mind plays tricks on you. I was sitting here thinking about this yesterday afternoon, and I hadn't thought about it for years, but my dad often used to give thanks for the breakfast meal. And for the mercies of the Lord experienced through the night. I'd forgotten he used to pray that way. But you know what? Every morning we get up, we should give thanks to the Lord that we're still alive. If you're not sure, go to the bathroom and breathe on the mirror and you'll know in a second. If you're not alive, call John. He wants to talk to you. We give thanks to the Lord for the new mercies we experience every day. We sing the songs as a new expression of praise and thanksgiving to God for the mercies we are experiencing day by day. Notice also, he says, by blessing his name, we worship, we glorify the Lord in joyful worship by blessing the name of the Lord our God. The idea there is to speak excellent words about To bless someone is to speak excellent words about that person. So literally, we speak excellent words about the excellent name of the Lord our God. Do you know how many names the Lord has in Scripture? I'm not sure because I haven't counted them all yet, but there is a lot. I did a little study. You see, I'm not sure how to prepare my heart for worship. I'm not sure how I can come before the Lord and worship. I find it difficult well, here's one way you can do it. Get, find online, come and ask me, I'll give it to you, a list of all the names of the Lord that I can show you. I'm going to give you some of them now just as an exercise. But we bless the name of the Lord. The Bible says that his name is this. He is the Lord God Almighty, Lord Almighty and God Almighty. He is the Lord and God Most High, meaning Lord Most High and God Most High. He is God Eternal, the Ancient of Days. He's the living God. He's the God of peace. 
He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Lord our God. He is the Sovereign Lord. He is the Lord our strength and song. He is the Lord our shield. He is the Lord who provides, the Lord who sees, the Lord who shepherds, the Lord our banner, the Lord our hiding place, the Lord our hope, the Lord our righteousness. He is the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. He is the one only living and true God. Those are all the names of God in Scripture. And I just touched on a few of them. In Hebrew, all those the Lord provides, Lord shepherds, Jehovah Jireh, you may have sung that song if you're as old as I am back in Sunday school days or youth group days. There is seven compound names of the Lord, and apparently all seven names are found in Psalm 23. And the psalmist says, listen, people of God, People of God from all humanity, from all the nations, come together, lift up your hearts in joyful praise to God. Bless his name. Speak excellent words of the excellent name of the Lord. You see, I have three names, Nelson James Atwood, and there's certain connotations you associate with those names. And the same is infinitely greater in truth about the Lord our God. Because all those names aren't just superfluous names. Uh, When King Charles was being crowned, they listed all of his dominions and reigns. He was the king of Tokyo and the emperor of Japan and all the other things they listed about. Those aren't real ones. I'm just making them up. But he had all these different titles. You think nobody knows King Charles by those titles. And really they mean very little because he has no real authority and power in those situations. But when the Bible talks about the name of our God, Lord Almighty, it's not an exaggeration. It's not a superfluous title. That is who he is. The people of God, the psalm calls us to come together as a people, as a community of faith, and lift up our hearts and our voices in joyful worship to the Lord, singing and blessing his name. Notice also we're to glorify the Lord in faithful witness. And we see that in the last part of verse 2 and verse 3. And you know what I love about this? He's talking about worship. Sing, sing, sing. And then halfway through verse 2, I have a semicolon. And the next line begins, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Listen, the way it works is worship flows into witness. Worship is established in the scriptures as a priority over witness. And the simple reality is, brothers and sisters, we cannot really witness for the Lord well if we are not first worshiping at his feet. Because when we worship, we get a great view of our great God. And it's easy to go out and talk about our great God when we come from a time of heartfelt worship before the Lord. Worship takes priority over witness. Worship flows out of witness. Worship, if you like, sorry, witness flows from worship. That's the way God designed it. We, We glorify the Lord in faithful witness by proclaiming his salvation. Notice, you say, what would that mean to them? The people of Israel are given this psalm to sing to the nations of the earth. What would salvation mean to them? I started thinking back through the Old Testament. And no doubt, as the psalmist says, proclaim the good news of his salvation. The people of Israel would think back, right back to the times of Moses, when God, with a powerful, mighty hand, brought them out of Egypt in power, in glory, in a sense. When God rescued them from that dominion of slavery and brought them out to establish them a nation, that was salvation. A wonder. As David walked up the hill with the Ark of the Covenant behind him or somewhere near him. And he was dancing with all his might as the Bible says to the Lord. He was worshiping the Lord in his heart. I wonder as he gave Asaph the words of that psalm to sing. He wasn't thinking back to those years when he was chased around the deserts and strongholds and wilderness places of the land of Israel with Saul, the madman king behind him, trying to destroy him as he sang, proclaim the good news of his salvation. He remembered God's salvation and deliverance of him from Saul's hand. 
The exiles coming back to the land after they'd been in exile for 70 years and rebuilding the temple for the worship of the people of God. And as they're building that temple up, they're thinking back to those years in Babylon and the utterly depraved form of pagan worship that they had been set into for those 70 years. And as they built the temple of the Lord's temple, the Lord's house, they began to sing proclaiming his salvation, his deliverance of them from that Babylonian captivity back into the land. That's salvation. But you know, brothers and sisters, for us, there's something so much greater than that. We come together and we sit down in a group and there's no altar outside, there's no fire, there's no smoke, there's no blood. There's no veil separating us from God. We come into the presence of the very living God. And we sing for joy from the bottom of our hearts that we have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. A God who is absolutely holy. Unable to tolerate the presence of sin in his presence. Has come to us. Born of a virgin. Truly man and truly God, walking this earth in perfect, sinless obedience to his Father, going all the way to a cross, suffering and dying on that cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Brothers and sisters, when we read the psalm and it says, proclaim the good news of his salvation, we proclaim the good news that Jesus has set us free from God's wrath, from sin, from hell, from death. From the grave, he has brought us together and made us his people. Well, that's a theme of praise, isn't it? Notice he says from day to day, daily, in and out. It's a life of worship flowing into witness. He says among the nations, proclaim the good news of his salvation among the nations. Tell of his glory among the nations. What to tell of the glory of the Lord. I think sometimes our witnessing and our our gospel work is so boiled down to you've got a problem and God's got the answer. And I think that's actually totally backwards. As you read through the psalm, you know what I I picked up as I read through this? The first thing to be made known to those who we are witnessing to is the greatness of our God. The first thing to be made known is the glory of the Lord. Why? Well, if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, In chapter 4, you read there how Paul says that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ has been shone into our hearts. We've seen the glory of the Lord. And one of the things that we must confront the world, we must ourselves be confronted with over and over again, is the glory of the living God. The idea of glory means, in in the Hebrew, it's the word kavod. And it means weightiness or significance. Our God is glorious. He is weighty. He is significant. He is the absolute standard. He is truth. And so we declare his glory among the nations. You say, what kind of glory do we declare? We declare the glory of his creation. Look around you. Everything you see is a result of God's creation. We declare the glory of a God who spoke and said, let there be, and it was so, and he created it. We speak of the glory of God as the lawgiver, the one who came to his people and gave them his word, his law, the God who revealed himself and the way to him through his law, through his word. We reveal to the nations around us the glory of God and his providence. God's preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions all falls under the realm of God's providence. And God is exercising his providence in their lives and our lives every single minute of every single day of every week, month, year, all the way out. We tell them of the glory of God's providence in our lives. We tell them of the glory of a savior and a redeemer. We tell them of the wonderful deeds of the Lord among the peoples. Those two go so closely together, hand in hand. The glory and the works of God. When we go out to make the gospel known to those around us, I think it's a mistake when we start off with, you've got a problem and God's got the answer. We make them the center of attention. We go out and we say, there is a God. 
There is a God in heaven. And this is what he has done and this is what he is like. And then we declare the gospel to them. Why do we do this? Why do we witness? We witness, first of all, so the nations will trust the Lord. When we proclaim God and the greatness of who he is, we proclaim one in whom we can place our trust. Uh, There's a great scene from a movie. I saw it many years ago. I don't remember too much about the movie, but the one scene is it's in the days when in the southeastern United States, right around the time of the revolution and all that, the war and everything, and uh, they were making and designing these uh, chairs, these Windsor chairs. Anybody here know what a Windsor chair is? No. If you go online and you look, you'll see in southeastern United States these Chairs made of very thin, uh, very flexible material, bent in a big curve up, and the legs are splayed out, and there's got a, a dish seat that you sit in, and it looks so fragile because the, all the bits of the chair are made out of little thin pieces of wood that are very carefully shaped, and the way that you shape that wood, know this from my carpentry experience, helps with the strength of that chair. And the opening scene, this one guy is trying to make a perfect Windsor chair, and he just see him, and he's not a very big guy. He's about Joel's size, and he starts to sit down in the chair, and he's super hesitant. He's not too sure if the chair will hold him, and he slowly relaxes, and you hear this creak and a bit of a groan, and all of a sudden, crash, the whole thing comes flying apart, and he's on the floor, and he gets up all mad because the chair won't hold him. What's the point of that, you're asking? That chair doesn't look like it would hold anything spindly. It doesn't look strong. It looks weak and barely held together. And you kind of cringe as you watch him lowering his weight into that chair. But you look at maybe the seat where Lincoln sits in the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. It's a great big stone chair with stone arms and stone seat and stone back. And you see that chair and you think anybody could sit in that chair. It's strong. It will hold anybody who lowers, even me, lowering my considerable uh, healthy weight into that chair. It will hold me. And when we go out and preach the gospel, we go out and preach the gospel of a God who is great and greatly to be praised because that inspires those who are listening to us to put their trust in the living God. Psalmist writes in verses, uh, let's read again. Verses 2 to 4, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Why? And in verse 4, he gives us the answer, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, beloved, we serve a God who is great. We serve a God who is worthy of all our trust. We serve a God who is worthy to follow. We serve a God who is worthy with every word of worship that we can lift up from our hearts and our voices. Ah, beloved, do you live a life of worship? You say, well, you know, I can only make it to church so many weeks. No, that's, that's not a life of worship. A life of worship starts in your own home, with your own Bible, in your own little space, Well, you get down before the living God and you read the scriptures and you begin to pray and your heart begins to lift up and soar before the the heights of heaven. And you worship in, in spoken word or silent word and you worship in prayer. Perhaps you remember the lines of a song and you worship the Lord who is great and greatly to be praised. Maybe some of the struggle we all have with witnessing is because our life of worship is out of balance and out of order. And the psalmist says, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. And from that worship, proclaim and tell of his glory. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We worship with our whole lives. We praise with our lips. But beloved, something else about worship I just want to bring up. Beware lest worship be all about our blessings from God. You hear about the guy that was talking about his wife? And someone said, well, you know, what's your wife like? And he said, oh, she's the greatest wife. She cooks the food I love. She's so good at cleaning my house, my car, my boat. She's, she's so good at, at, at cleaning and, and skinning the deer when I shoot it. She's so good at looking after me. 
She makes me feel happy. She makes me feel good. And the guy is standing Well, you told me all about you know, her effect on you, but what is she like? And beloved, don't we do that? We come in and we worship the Lord for all the blessings we have received. You're saying we shouldn't do that? No, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm saying be careful lest our worship shifts out of balance. And all we see is God is like a great big vending machine in the sky that just keeps giving us one blessing after another. And our worship becomes all around the blessings we have received about, instead of about who God is himself. He is great and greatly to be praised. He is the almighty God of heaven and earth. This is our God. Beloved, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. One of the biggest problems of facing our church and our, our brand, if you like, of Christianity is our view, our vision of God is too small. And I can see the psalmist as he's writing and his own heart is soaring in praise as he's putting his pen to the paper and writing the words, sing to the Lord a new song. He's great. He's greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are idols. Verse 5, the way that reads in the original is something like this. For all the nothings of the peoples are worthless. That's how you can retranslate that quite accurately. And isn't it true? In their day, idols looked like something like that. A statue thing with something on top of it. Maybe a shape of a man or an animal or a bird or a fish or whatever it was. I love the scene when the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines and they take it away and the Philistines bring it in as a trophy of war and they set it down before Dagon, their God, in the, in the temple of Dagon. In the morning they come back and what happens? Dagon's on his face. I believe the first time his, his hands are broken off, I think. And they're looking around, they're all a bit embarrassed. Oh, okay, this is no good. So they get and they kind of prop him back up again, and maybe they got some nails and a hammer and, and nailed his hands back on and sort of set him up and sort of adjust him so no one really noticed what had happened. And the next day they come back in again. Now the Dagon's lying flat on his face, and his head, his hands, and his feet are all broken off. And God is showing the people of the of Philistines, the Philistia, I guess you would say, that their God is nothing. And worthless. But our God is to be feared and greatly praised. One of the problems that we have in our day and age, brother and sister, is that we have become far too irreverent in our approach to the living God. Brothers and sisters, when we walk into the church, and not this building is just a building, it's it's pine and plaster and carpet and ceiling tiles and wiring and, and some dodgy stumps and a few other bits and pieces. This is just a building. It's a box. But when we come together as God's people to worship the living God, there ought to be a far greater reverence for God in all of our hearts. We treat God far too flippantly. I'm sorry, maybe I'm walking on your toes when I say this, but I'm serious. The God we serve is still the absolutely holy God of the Old Testament. We don't worship a New Testament God 2.0 that's kinder and gentler and easier to get along with. Our God is holy. And when the psalmist writes and he says, the reason why we sing to the Lord, the reason why we worship the Lord, the reason why we witness for the Lord is because he is great. He is greatly to be praised. He is to be feared, revered, reverenced, held in awe. When was the last time, brother and sister, you sat down with your Bible and as reading through the scriptures, your heart just kind of went, oh. As you meditate on scripture, our hearts ought to be just broken before the Lord and in awe of the majesty of the Lord. Look what it says in verse 6. He says, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The splendor of the Lord. 
You can only talk about it in terms, and, and for us living in this context of what we can see and hear and taste and smell and so on, we, this is all we've got to reference it. But the Bible tells us that the splendor of God, the majesty of God is always before him. He always reigns and sits on his throne in awe-inspiring splendor. To get something of the idea across, go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. What do we see there? The seraphim are saying one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Back and forth, they keep saying it to one to the other. And the train of the Lord's robe is filling the temple, and smoke is rising up. And as the voice of the seraphim speaks, the foundations shake underneath Isaiah's feet. Great, big, massive stones. And he curls up in a ball in fear. The splendor and the majesty of the Lord are displayed there. You go to the book of Revelation, you see the same scenes again. And the splendor and the majesty of the Lord are displayed. That's why we are called to worship and to witness. Message for us this morning is glorify the Lord in your worship and your witness for his greatness and his glory. Brother and sister in Christ, is that how you live your life? Worship flowing into witness. I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Our problem is our view of God is too small. We've learned to be wowed and wondered at the marvels of modern technology, this and that. You go to the movies and you see what CGI can produce. I I went with Brady on his birthday to watch a movie and I was in the theater and the sound system was just making my seat shake and the the things they could do with, with, I'll call it magic tricks, I don't know how they do it, the effects on the screen. And we go, wow, that's so cool. Until we realize it's all just smoke and mirrors, it's all just computer tricks and sound machines. When we stand before the God in the presence of absolute holiness and splendor and majesty, when we get before the Lord with our Bibles open in the presence of a God who is splendid and majestic, we see his strength and his beauty as it's woven through the scriptures and presented to us, then our hearts will begin to worship and then witness will just flow out of us because we can't help but tell about the thing that we love the most. Moving on to the second stanza. In verses 7 to 10, the psalmist writes and calls us to glorify the Lord because he reigns as king. Notice again, he addresses all the families of the peoples in verse number 7. It's the same idea as back in verse number 1, all the earth. All the nations of the earth are being called. It's almost as if he gave Israel the psalm to sing to the nations around them and and as they were supposed to be evangelizing the nations and they failed miserably in doing it, they were supposed to call the people to come and worship the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's the scripture's call to us to come and worship the Lord. He says, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. The idea of the word ascribe is the word a give or recognize or assign. So you say, well, how do we give the Lord glory? And the answer is, you can't give the Lord glory. His glory is absolutely perfect. It's been perfect for eternity past and it'll be perfect for eternity future. You can't give him glory. It's like, how, do you, it's like, how can we show the sun here on earth? You can't bring the sun down to earth to show, but what you can do is take a mirror and reflect the brightness of the sun to everybody around you. You used to play that trick in school, right? You get a mirror and and the teacher catch him right in the eye so he couldn't see and get mad at you. That's what we did. We reflect it, right? And that's the idea of what the psalmist is saying. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe, reflect, display the glory of the Lord to those around you. We cannot give the Lord glory, but we can reflect and recognize his glory. We recognize his power and his strength that work in our lives. How did you get through that sermon in the grace of the Lord and the power he supplied? How do you get through your day in the grace of the Lord and the power he supplies and the strength he supplies? No, I did it on my own. No, you didn't. You think you did it on your own, 
but you did not. You did it in the grace and the strength and the power that the Lord supplies. And when we recognize that, that strength from God, that glory from God, that power of God to do what we are doing, we are glorifying his name. We ascribe to him. He is the one only living and true God. When we recognize his glory and his strength and the glory of his name, we are recognizing before all of creation that there is only one God. I didn't do this in the strength of Krishna or in the strength of uh, one of the many gods of the Hindu gods. I didn't do this in the worthless idols that man makes in the strength of money, the strength of power, the strength of prestige, any of those things. I did this in the strength and the power of the Lord. We ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. We ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Notice what he says next in verse 9. He says, bring an offering and come into his courtyards. What's he talking about? He's talking about something that's absolutely fundamental to our Christian faith. Not one of us can come into the presence of the living God as we are. We often hear that on signs and so on, come as you are. God says, don't come as you are. You cannot come as you are. You must be changed. Then you can come. So what do you mean? What I mean is we cannot worship the Lord our God until we are changed by God. And so the psalmist, as he's writing this beautiful expression of worship and witness to the people of God, he tells them, you must bring an offering and come into his courtyards. Why do we need to bring an offering? Because the simple reality is that God is exceedingly angry with us for our sin. One of the great problems with the modern gospel, the way we present it, is far too often we give people the idea that God is indifferent to our sin. He's not. That God doesn't care about the sin we commit. He cares much and greatly. He says, bring an offering. The word behind the word offering there is the idea of a memorial offering. When I first started studying this, and look, I thought it had the idea of like a blood offering, but it doesn't. It actually has a very clear idea of a memorial offering. You say, what's the significance in that? In actual fact, it's got some great significance for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, there is no more offering to make for sin. It has been fully made in the Lord Jesus Christ. Atonement has been made for you and for me in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as he gave himself as an offering for sin on our behalf. And the psalmist says to the nations, bring an offering. But the offering has already been made. So how does that work? I come and I recognize and I claim the value of Christ's offering for me. Because Christ's offering was enough. It was sufficient once for all. The offering of Christ on the cross as giving himself as the paschal lamb that was lifted up. The value of that sacrifice was sufficient for every person who ever was conceived. But the sad reality is it will only be efficient for those who believe those who claim the value of that offering for themselves and bring it. So when I come before the living God, I often begin my prayers. Father, I come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I come in the finished work of Christ. That's the only means of access we have into his presence. It's the only way the Gentiles can walk into the courtyards, as he talks about here, is they come with the value of the perfect atonement that was made once for all. They come with a sacrifice. They come with Christ. My friends sitting here this morning, how did you get in here? You say, it's easy. I walk through the door, man. What are you talking about how to get in here? Now, how did you get into the presence of the living God? Because you don't just walk in. You bring an offering, and then you come into his courtyards. And you can come this morning, and you can come every Sunday morning, and you can sit in this church, and you can sing the hymns. You can close your eyes and bow your head when we pray the prayers, and you can listen patiently and quietly to the sermon. 
You can sing with us and you can eat with us and fellowship with us to a certain degree. But unless you come with an offering, and the offering is Jesus Christ, you will only come so far. But you'll never understand and know the fellowship, the love, the joy, the peace that God himself gives us when you bring Christ and you come in. That's our only means of coming in, brothers and sisters in Christ. To all those sitting here who don't know Jesus, that's the only way in. He says, bring an offering and come into his courtyards. Worship the Lord in holy array. I love the fact that he invites us to come into the courtyards of the Lord. We go back to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and you can read there about how we were once afar off. But the middle wall of division has been torn down and removed. And now the Gentile nations are brought in and welcomed in amongst the people of God. There is now one people of God. That's all. And we invite him to come into the courtyards. It looks forward to a time when that wall will be torn away. And there will be no division between Gentile and Jew. They will be together as one people of God. Brothers and sisters... We come together and we worship as part of a fellowship. You say, why can't we do church at home? Okay, putting COVID aside for a second, because that was an extraordinary circumstance in which we had to make uh, concessions. We had to find a way to worship the Lord within the laws of the land, and we did. We did it through Zoom and all that stuff, which everybody hated, including me. Nothing like preaching to a little round glass dot. It's not the same. But we worshipped. We come together to worship. He says, come into the courtyards with the people of God. And there is something absolutely majestic as we get together. I can sing in my office the hymns. All the mice leave in disgust and the visitors don't stay very long if I'm in there singing by myself. But when I get together with God's people and I begin to sing... Uh, for those of you who are here at the funeral, I had a tremendous joy. Uh, Brian Harper came up, and we sang, uh, led the last song, and I could hear his voice. And I don't sing so well, but when i got a voice I can hear and sing against, we could put our voices together, and there was a harmony and a melody in our voices singing together. And the whole idea, brothers and sisters, is we come together in reverent worship for the living God. We join our voices with our brothers and our sisters, and we lift up our hearts together to worship the Lord. And we worship him in holy attire, he says in verse 9. That's not a holiness that you manufacture and build up for yourself. It's the holiness or the righteousness of Christ that is given to you. To to illustrate the story, imagine a young man is taken from the streets of London back in the 1800s. And he is filthy and stinking. His clothes are like rags. And he's brought into the palace of the king. And they're going to prepare him to meet with the king. And first they take off all of his, uh, his rags. They sort of peel off the strips of cloth. And it's, he's so bad, the poor you know, cleaners are going to have pegs on their nose. He smells so bad. And they wash him down. They cleanse him from head to foot. And they take some of the prince's robes, the royal robes of the prince, and they clothe him in those robes. And they said, you can't get into the king's presence without a ring. So they put a ring on his finger that belongs to the prince. They said, you know, you can't go into the king's presence with bare feet. It's not allowed. And they take some of the prince's shoes and they put them on his feet. And they put a robe on his back. And they lead him into the presence of the king. And he stands there. He didn't have a right to be there. Not one. By the grace of the king of that land, someone came and took him and brought him in and washed him and clothed him in the royal robes of the prince and brought him into the presence of the king. And there in somebody else's royal attire, he lifts up his voice to give thanks. That's what he's talking about here. We come in this place, gathered together as God's people, not because there's something holy and righteous and just about us. We come in because Christ has taken his righteousness and clothed us with it. And we have robes of righteousness that are clean and bright and white. But it isn't just this thing, right? And this jacket will wear out. 
It's an internal clothing. And the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord, you peoples, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Give glory to the Lord. Recognize his strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. We talked about that. We bring an offering, which is Christ himself, and we come into his courtyards with his people, and we worship the Lord in holy attire, and we tremble before him all the earth. Oh, how great is our God, people. Surely the psalmist is right. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. When you stand before the living God, whether it's in your home with your Bible open or as part of God's people, do you tremble? You know what the Bible tells us? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, no, 65, I believe it is. I'll find it. Yeah, 66. Isaiah 66. And this is what the Bible says. He says, This is what the Lord says Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, so all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But I will look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. That's the promise of God. And beloved, when we come together to worship the Lord, with the Lord Jesus as our only means of entrance, his robes of righteousness that's covering us up, his blood that has cleansed us, and we tremble before the Lord, for he is a great God. The wonderful promise of Scripture is he turns and looks towards us, and the idea is a look of grace and compassion and love and gentleness, and he draws us close to himself. Oh, beloved, glorify the Lord in worship and in witness for his glory. We, we secondly do it, the point I wanted to make in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Isn't it cool? Again, he talks about coming, coming in, Worshipping, trembling, and then he says, say among the nations. And once again, worship has turned back into witness. And he sends them out. Those who have come in from the nations and gathered with God's people and worship the Lord. Now they're again being sent out into the nations to once again proclaim that the Lord reigns. We serve a God who is king. Absolutely. Listen to what the Bible says Uh, It says in uh, Psalm 93, verse 1, the Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. In Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. In 99, in verse 1, the Lord reigns. This is what it says in Daniel 7. Daniel's looking, and he says, I'm looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white snow, like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the courts sat, and the books were opened. And a few verses later, Daniel continues, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. It's the same message in all different parts of the Bible. We come together to worship a God who is absolutely great and holy. We receive the cleansing of his blood. We receive the holiness, the righteousness of Christ applied to us. And he turns and says, go and make it known. And we go out into this world and we don't go out saying, well, you know, we we serve a really cool God. We serve a God who is king. Jesus is reigning on a throne. Whatever your view of eschatology may happen to be, he is seated right now on his Father's throne, and he is ruling and reigning over all creation. We're serving a God who is king. 
And the declaration of the gospel in witness is to declare the greatness of God and the kingship of God. And the last part, we're going to skip over a little bit here, but the last part is he will judge the peoples. He is coming again. May it be before 12 noon. Amen? He's coming. That's great news for those of us who know and love the Lord, but for those of us who do not know the Lord, that is terrifying news. You see, go back to, I think it's verse number four, pardon me. He says, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. The idea of the word tell is the idea of an evangelist. But an evangelist has a different connotation in the Bible times than it does today. And today we think of an evangelist, a guy who goes and makes a great big crusade and stands up and preaches the gospel in a stadium, or a guy who goes out in a street corner and stands up and preaches Ben Price, for example. That's an evangelist. That's a great thing. In their day, they had a different context. Two armies go to war. Big king thumps little king. Big king sends his messengers. They're called evangels. They run to the, the cities and the towns of the conquered king, and they hammer on the gates, and they say, we want to pass on a message to you. The great king has conquered, and he is coming. And all those who declare allegiance to this great king, they will be included as his people. They'll know his joy, his blessings, his rewards when he arrives. That's exactly what they were doing historically. That's exactly what we do when we go out to witness, don't we? We declare the Lord our God is great and greatly to be praised. We declare the Lord our God reigns as king. And we declare the Lord our God is returning and he's going to judge the peoples. Which side will you stand on? Will you stand with Christ as one of his Will you come with the only acceptable offering, which is Christ himself? Will you receive the salvation he offers from his wrath? Will you be clothed with the righteousness that he provides? And will you lift up your voices in worship to the living God? That's a call. I can make it again and again and again. And I'm telling you, it thrills my heart to make it. I get no joy in this world like standing and preaching. But beloved, what are you going to do with a message? You can go home and say, that was a great message. Or you can go home and say, that was too long yet again. That's okay. I understand. At the end of the day, when you stand before God, his question will be, not did you like the message, but did you do what it called you to do? And the call is to worship the Lord, to witness for the Lord, to trust the Lord, to come together with God's people and lift up your voices in worship. We serve a great God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, would you stand with me? We'll pray, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we stand here before you and we bow our heads in worship, for you are the almighty God, the great God who is to be greatly praised and greatly feared, the God who created everything with the, with the word the God who spoke the heavens into existence and with the word of the living God created the church, created your people. Father, we give thanks and we praise you, O God, for the work that you have done in each of our lives. And Father, each of us knows where we stand before you, whether or not we truly believe, whether we have brought the acceptable offering, which is Christ, 
whether we're being clothed in righteousness, and whether we gather in the middle of the church or as part of the church. Father, I cry out to you this morning that you would work in each one of our hearts. Father, for those of us who have made worship about all about ourselves and our blessings, Father, lift our gaze to see the, the glory of the living God. Father, for those of us who have put an unfair, un, an incorrect emphasis on emotion and not on truth, Father, help us to see the truth of the living God and balance it. Father, for those of us who are very keen to witness but don't have much time for worship, Father, help us to see that the first and foremost thing is to worship and from that worship to flow witness. Father, for those of us who would rather think of God as a grandfather in the sky dispensing good things to people who ask, good people who ask, Father, we pray. I cry out to you, O God, that you would open our eyes to see the scriptures, to realize who Jesus is as the King of kings and Lord of lords, to bow the knee before him and declare he is Lord, he is my Lord. Father, I cry out to you for those who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, give them no rest. Work in their hearts, O God, we pray, that they would turn and bow the knee and believe. Father, we give thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he has accomplished for us, for his life on this earth, Father, for his terrifying suffering on the cross, for his death, whereby he paid the penalty for all our sin. For his burial and for his resurrection, O oh God, we give thanks. We praise you, O oh God, for such a salvation. Father, we give thanks that we have been saved from slavery. We have been saved from our enemies. We have been saved for an eter- from an eternal death into eternal life. Father, we give thanks for all these things. And Father, we again, we would give thanks for the Lord Jesus, for it's because of him that we have these things. And we give thanks in his name. Amen and amen. Please have a seat.